the uh, the bedrock upon which any society, if it is to survive, is to be built, is comprised of two essential components, and they are the institutions of marriage and of family. And that's what makes what's happening in our society to marriages and family, particularly in our Western culture, so alarming. And I want you to consider this following trend. In 1920, one out of every 12 marriages ended in divorce, which was 8%. In 1940, one out of every eight, which was just a little over 12%. In 1960, it was one out of every six, which is 17%. And and today, in the 1980s and in the 1990s, it's two out of every three and three-quarter, or 54%. For the first time in the history of our country, the majority of children grow up with the mistaken belief that divorce is an inevitable conclusion of every marriage. And I want you to consider the messages that they are hearing and that we are hearing as a society as a whole. How many of you saw the movie Mrs. Doubtfire? Okay, let me ask you a question. What was the message, the underlying message of that particular movie? Now, I want you to understand for a moment that $186 million has been spent at the box office to see that movie. Now, I know there are people who go and see it multiple times. There are people, this, this isn't going to include what's going to be released in video or anything like that. But if you break it down at an average of four or five bucks a person that goes to a movie, that's 36 million people have seen this movie. And the movie's central theme is divorce. What was the message that you walked away from as it comes to marriage and the family? This is what I got out of it, and you tell me if you agree. Men and women get married. If it doesn't work out, they get divorced. And if they have kids, too bad. Kids, suck it up. That's the way it is. Stop whining about it. Just make the best of it. Now, that's what I got out of it. I don't know what you got out of it. I don't know what other message there was. But the bottom line was, that's just the way it is. So make the best of it. Now think about TV shows. Here's one that's really fascinating, if you think about it. Here's Ward and June's boy, the beaver. He grows up, he gets married, and what does he do? He gets divorced. Why? Because that's the fashionable thing that takes place in every marriage, at least in 54% of marriages. And so we we have, for the first time in the history of our country, a generation of children that grow up with the mistaken belief that every marriage at least one out of every two, is going to end in divorce. That's the way it is. Let's make the best of it. That's the breaks. You see why this is so alarming and so disturbing? Because if we buy into this lie, and that's exactly what it is, it's a lie, then we will not survive as a nation. Because no nation in the history of the world has survived when the family has broken down. None. None. None have. Read your history books. Because as marriage and family goes, so go a nation. Our society is a direct reflection of what is taking place in our homes. Consider this for a minute. William Bennett, who used to be Secretary of Education, recently published an index of leading cultural indicators. And I want you to listen to this very carefully and very thoughtfully. He says that over this past 30 years, there has been a 560% increase in violent crime more than a 400% increase in illegitimate births, a quadrupling in divorce rate, 
a tripling of the percentage of children living in single-parent homes, more than 200, a 200% increase in the teenage suicide rate, and a drop of almost 80 points in the SAT scores. I believe that those statistics prove our suspicions, and that is that things have seriously changed in our country, and they have done it in our lifetime. We're being defeated not by some outside enemy, but we are defeating ourselves. I remember as a kid growing up in Pennsylvania, we used to have uh, uh, air raid drills. Now, I don't know if you had anything like this, but we used to have air raid drills. When, they, when the siren would sound, we would run into a closet. We didn't have duck and cover drills, um, but we had air raid drills, which anytime that, you know, a siren went off, we all ran into some closet in, in whatever room we were in, and we waited it out. Because we were convinced, and I'm still not convinced that this isn't true, by the way, that, uh, that the Russians could drop a bomb at any place in our country at any time that they wanted, and we need to be prepared for it. And that enemy hasn't gone away. And we need to be prepared for it. And so we would wait it out. Who would have believed then what has happened to us now? And that is that we are not being destroyed from some outside forces, which is certainly always a threat, but we're destroying ourselves from within. We're making it easy for anybody somewhere along the line just to come in and step up to the plate and take over. Because we are destroying ourselves. And you have to ask yourself a question. What in the world has led to this self-destruction? And I'm convinced, as I've mentioned in the last couple of weeks, I am convinced that we are reaping what we have sown. We're experiencing the consequences of our deliberate violation of the absolute moral standards of God. You say, but what areas are you talking about as far as marriage and family is concerned? Well, I'm glad you asked. I want you to consider this as some possibilities. Even if you didn't ask, I'm glad that now you are going to ask. What what, what have we violated? Think about this. You shall not commit adultery. Possibility. I read in the paper the other day, Valentine's Day. This is great. How many of you saw this article? Private eyes adore Valentine's Day. That's the busiest day of the year for private investigators. Why? Because if you're going to nail somebody cheating on you, that's the day to do it. Because most guys that are doing this are absolutely in a fog anyway, and they're just running around buying gifts for everybody. You know, because they know that they can't get away with not buying gifts for whoever it is that they've got lined up. And so investigators love it. They say, we catch everybody that day. It's great. Well, that's a consideration. How about you shall not lie? That's a possibility. How about you shall not cover your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's goods? You know, the grass always looks greener on the other side. Things just aren't working out at home, so there must be another possibility out there. Those are all certainly possibilities. But, see, the symptom that we see, once again, is, is divorce. Is really the symptom of a root problem. And the root problem is that we're violating an absolute moral standard of God. And I want to just concentrate on one of these as a possibility. And that's simply this. I believe every divorce case is a violation of this absolute moral standard of God. And you know which one it is? Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not lie. Every divorce case violates that moral absolute standard of God. say, well, what do you mean? Well, because one or the other or both 
Why? I'll tell you why. Because if you stop and think about this, and I, and I need to lay this out, and I deliberately misspelled this because most of you would think it's spelled right. Well, actually, I just figured out that I misspelled it, and, uh, but then I'm trying to come up with some way that I don't look quite as stupid as I do when I put this down here. But, yeah, I know, that's why I just did that. Well, the good thing about receiving scores like that is if I remember right, you throw out the high and the low, and then you take the average of the rest. Thank you very much. Oh, my goodness. What's that? Oh, I know. I'm going to put it up here. I'm not worried about that. But let me, let me, what's the foundation of every marriage? Foundation of every marriage. Okay, trust is one. What else? What? It's the, this, it's, it's the c, c, c word. It's every, every, every single person in the world tries to avoid saying the c, c, c word, which is commitment. And, 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 and that's what it is. I was a stutter. There's only one T in commitment. I know that. But actually, that's not correct because there's two. There's one in the middle and one at the end. So there you go. But, but it's commitment. It's the foundation of every marriage. Think about it. That's really the bottom line. Because... Although emotional love is a wonderful thing, and it's nice to feel, you know, like that towards your spouse, um, the bottom line is that, you know, we ride emotional roller coasters. Some days we feel like we love each other a whole bunch, and other days we feel like we can't stand each other a whole bunch. And that's all emotion. And what's the thing that helps you to kind of ride through this roller coaster ride? It's called commitment. That's all there is to it. There's nothing else that holds a marriage together more than commitment. And so when you think about what we're talking about, the problem is, what is, what's commitment? Commitment is, when you go back to it, I made you a promise. I made you a promise that if I violate it, then I lie to you. But see, the age, we live in an age where commitment is really cheap. Stop and think about it. I mean, commitment. I mean, there was a time when a man's word was as good as gold. If you said you were going to do something, you did it. If you said you'd be somewhere, you'd be there. You didn't have to worry about making another phone call to see if they're going to show up or not. You didn't have to worry about any of those things because people said what they said and they did what they said they were going to do. And that was simple. It was easy to understand. But now we live in an age where it's commitment by convenience. That's underlying. It's never stated. If it's convenient, what I've committed to, then I'll follow through. If it's not convenient or it cost me more than I thought it was going to cost me or I had mistakenly entered into something because I didn't check into all the facts or I didn't really research what I was getting into, well, then, you know, I'm not committed to it anymore. See, we see it in marriage. We see it in business. We see it in politics. We see it in athletics on a regular basis. Think about it. Guy signs a five-year contract. The third year into his contract, he holds out. Why? Because now what he signed for five years ago, he didn't realize how much wages were going to go up, and now he's way underpaid compared to all the rest of his contemporaries. So what does he do? He holds out. And you know what the public does? They go nuts. Oh, the guy should honor his word. Who's he think he is? You know, he's only making six eighty-five a year, and now he wants two million a year. Who's he think he is? I mean, geez, he got honor your word. That's what the public says. The same public that doesn't honor their word to their spouse, to their kids, 
to their business associates, to their employers or their employees, the same public that doesn't honor their commitments that they make in every other area of life can very clearly and easily see it to somebody who's in the paper because they aren't honoring their commitment. And how easy it is to point our finger at somebody else because we can visibly see them where we're just as guilty of it, but that's okay because what? That's different. It's different. It's not different. God's moral absolutes aren't different for anybody. See, I love an article that I saw this past week on, on this whole Tanya Harding thing. And it was one of the writers in the L.A. Times said, you know, if you think that this gal could go through all that she went through, you know, the nude photos, the, the videos, uh, the accusations, the criminal investigation, the FBI reports, the da-da-da-da-da, and on and on and on, and just go out there and skate flawlessly, then they said, you don't understand the rules of gravity do not bend for celebrity. And I like that. Because I change it and say this, you know what? We don't understand the rules of the laws of God do not bend for us. And that's just the way it is. See, we'll do it as long as it's convenient. And we always have good reasons why we don't do it. Listen to this. This is a great, great story. Ava Gardner was asked about her failed marriages to Mickey Rooney, Artie Shaw, and Frank Sinatra. You know what her response was? It's not my fault when you consider that my three husbands have had 20 wives. How's that for some good reasoning, huh? You know, you got to stop and think about that. It's not my fault because my three husbands have had 20 wives. She only had three husbands. They had maybe seven each. Wives. Man. But that's the way reasoning works. There's a mighty big difference between good, sound reasons and reasons that sound good. You got it? There's a big difference between the two. And that's really what we've got to concentrate on. The underlying reason that every divorce takes place is because one or both parties lied. There was a moral absolute of God that was violated. Thou shalt not lie. Now the question is, when you made a promise or you made a vow, you've got to ask yourself a question. What is it? What is a vow? Every wedding. How many of you are married? Raise your hand. Did you take a vow at your wedding? You remember that little thing, the vow exchange? Remember that? I know it's a little hazy for some of you, but you remember that? I mean, you were there, right? <laughs> okay. Well, we'll talk about how we know you were there in a minute. But you, you were there. You took a vow, right? Well, what were you saying to each other? Somebody remembers it. Tell me what you said. I know, I know. Here it is. You know, here's what a woman hears. Do you promise to love? Here's what a guy hears. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you can will be used against you in a court of law. Now, I know that that's what happens, right? I mean, it's like, oh, it's, I got a six on that one. Thank you. But, but that's, the way, that's the way it works. Like, I know I heard something, but that's what he heard, right? But that's not the case, right? What, what is a vow? What did you hear? You heard that you made each other promises. That's what you heard. You heard that you were going to love, honor, accept, cherish, be there through richer or poor, sickness and health, for better or for worse. Uh, you were going to be there till what? Till death do us part. Right? I mean, that's what you heard. That's what you said. That's what you agreed to. So now here's a question you got to ask yourself. A little hint here. Hint. What is a vow? Okay? Hint. A E. I owe you. Yes. That's what it is. Thank you very much. That's what a vow is. A-E, I owe you. I do. I owe you. I owe my wife. I do. And she owes me. We owe one another. Now, we've got to take a look at something because it doesn't really matter what we have to say. But, you know, think about it. There are seven facts that we're going to look at. 
that the Bible breaks out as it has to do with this whole thing about a wedding vow. We'll go back to the drawing board. We'll focus on what, has, what God has to say about promises, about the importance of our word, about making commitments to one another, and about honoring those things because God holds us accountable. Am I under obligation, according to God's moral standard, that I make a vow that God will hold me accountable to? That's really the issue, and those are the questions that we need to ask ourselves. So we'll just go through them. We'll go through them one at a time and uh, dig in and take a look at it. Here's the first, the first fact as far as a vow is concerned from God's perspective. Number one, Genesis 2.24 says, For this cause, speaking of marriage, a man shall leave his father, leave his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. For this cause, a man shall leave his father. You know, really, when you get down to it, marriage is entered into, the commitment is made, and it's caused by a man's decision. Think about this for a moment. How many guys do you know that have cold feet when it comes to making a marital commitment versus how many women you know that look forward to it? Isn't it usually the man who's hesitant about entering into that long-term relationship? Because God has wired men and women differently. God has made women so that they look for security, they look for comfort, they look for uh, a, a mate for life, they look for family. Those are the ways that, I mean, God has made women that way. Men are a little different. Not that we don't want any of those things, but we want that and a lot of other stuff too. And, and see, and that's where the problem is. So guys kind of hesitate on making this commitment. It's usually the guy who hesitates on, okay, well, maybe we should get engaged. Well, you know, and it's usually the woman finally says, look, you know what, I've waited long enough and we just need to get down to a decision here, which way are we going? And then a guy's forced to at least give her an engagement ring and then he buys more time on when he's going to set the date. And that's the way it is. I mean, am I off base here or what? I mean, every woman here goes, hey, man, hey, have you talked about that? That's the way it is. Now, Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. I like that. You know what it reminds me of? Finds a wife. It's like the hunt is on. <laughs> You know, it's a, it's a guy thing, you know? We got, we got our, our gear on, and we got our helmet, and our hat, and our, our, we got a gun, and we're just like, that one looks good. But then so do all these over here, too. You know? And it's kind of like, he who finds a wife. It's kind of a picture of a hunt and a conquer type, type thing. I mean, I found my wife. said, she's it. This is it. This is the one forever. This is her. And I knew she was it. Now, here's what happens. So, I ask her, will you marry me? And she says, oh, are you kidding me? Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. or something like that, okay? Because <laughs> thou shalt not lie. But it was close. It was close. And, uh, so, we get married, right? And now, this isn't what the minister said. And do you, Ann, take Arnold to be your husband, to have him to hold, love him to cherish, until things get a little tough and you get burned out and split? I, I don't remember hearing that. Um, but that was like the wedding vows of the 90s, you know what I mean? Well, let's just give it a shot. If it doesn't work out, then no big deal. Um, but that's not what took place. See, God says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And so here it is, we get married, and uh, 
you know, you make this promise, you make this commitment. And, and, and what I did was, by saying, would you marry me, I took her out of circulation. Because that's the way guys are. It's like, wait a minute, what do you mean you'd want to even you'd maybe date or go out or think about marrying somebody else? Oh, I can't have that. So, this, this is my woman, this is me, you know, I'm marrying you. Wow, what a great guy, huh? But then the point is, I took her out of circulation. She could have, if I wouldn't have said, would you marry me, and she didn't say yes, and we got married, she could have dated some of you. <laughs> as hard as that is to believe, but she could have done that, you know? And she could have married someone else. I mean, she could have done that. But, but she didn't. Why? Because she believed what I said. She believed the promises that I made. And I believe the promises that she made. See, marriage is rooted in a commitment. And really, when you think about it, men, let me ask you a question. Do you remember the day that you asked your wife to marry you? Do you remember the commitment that you made when you did? The vow that you took when you married her? Did you voluntarily enter into this relationship with your wife? Guys, if so... You caused this. You caused it. It's no one else's fault. You have no one else to blame. You caused it, and now you need to live with it. And you need to honor it. And you need to cherish her. <laughs> that's what you got to ask yourself. God holds us accountable for our promises. And that's why it's really important, if you think about it, this is you know, a little side note, for, for those of us who make promises or commitments, we need to understand, this isn't just about marriage here, we're going to talk a little bit more, but do you honor your word? Do you honor your commitment to other people? You need to understand the severity of it and the responsibility that goes along with it. Number two, it's also confessed in the presence of two or three witnesses. I like that. It's confessed in the presence of two or three witnesses. It says, but if he does not, but if he does not listen to you, take one or more witness, take one or more with you, so that they, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. In Matthew 18, it's dealing with church discipline, but basically the, the standard that's laid out in John 8:17 says, "Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true." And so what God is saying is that, you know what, whenever there's a question or a problem, Jesus responding to the Jewish leaders reinforced the concept of witnesses as part of the rules of evidence. Were there witnesses? You know, think about this for a minute. This would be great. You know, Deuteronomy uh, 19, 15 through 21 deals with the necessity of witnesses to convict a person and hold them responsible for their actions and also has provisions against false witnesses. If you were a false witness, you were stoned to death. So there was a certain fear of God that was put into your heart that if you're going to testify that somebody did something and they found out that you lied about it, then you were just executed for it. So false witnessing wasn't something that you wanted to do. But the point was is that two or three witnesses would gather together and say, yes, I saw him do this or I saw her do that, and they would hold that person accountable, and that would be the end of it. Done deal. Pretty simple. Wouldn't that be wonderful if our judicial system was based on that? Think about this for a minute. A guy walks into a building, shoots 20 people, kills them all. There's like 50 people that watch it take place. And then what do we do? We go to trial. We spend millions and millions of taxpayers' dollars to find out what really happened, and then what? And then find out why the person killed all the people. 
Think about it. What a great concept God had. <laughs> did you see him do it? Yeah, we all saw him do it. What did he do? He shot all those people. Case closed. Execute them next. And that's the way it was. And it was simple. But we're so complicated by the way we do things. You know, God's, I love his word because it's really right to the point. That's the way that it is. Why? Because God values human life. But let's go back to this point. Do you remember when you got married that you had what? Witnesses. What were the witnesses supposed to do? Witness what took place. They were there, and by law, it is required in the state of California and probably other states equally, but it is required that there are two witnesses present at a, at a wedding ceremony. Why? Because legally, the witnesses are there to testify to the fact that the two of you made a promise to one another. That's what they do. That's why they sign the, the wedding license. Witness signature, address, and a whole nine yards. Why? Because they were there and saw you make a commitment to your spouse. I love that. Every time I do a wedding ceremony, I always make sure the people that come to watch and, and to observe what's going on understand the significance of their responsibility. They're not there just to kill some time and get to the party afterwards, although, you know, that's kind of like, how long is this guy going and what are we having for lunch? That's usually the way it works. But the thing is, they miss what their responsibility is. Every person that goes to a wedding is responsible to be a witness that testifies to the promises that the bride and the groom make to one another that day. Here's the way this works in marriage. When the emotional roller coaster of life starts to take place, and those warm feelings of love and happiness and all those things are lost in the confusion of the reality of our world. If things aren't going the way you envisioned that they'd go. The purpose of the witnesses is to encourage you, to encourage me, to encourage one another, to remember the vows, remember the commitment, remember the promises that were made that particular day. Wouldn't it be a wonderful world to live in if your friends and your family and moms and dads and grandparents all got in your face when you're going through a tough time and said, listen, buddy, listen, lady, we were at your wedding and we heard the promises that you made to one another and we are going to hold you accountable to them. We're going to encourage you. We're going to love you. We're going to support you. We're going to pray for you. We're going to get you help. We're going to get you counseling. We're going to get anything that you need to be able to honor your commitment to one another but you are not getting out of it, period. That's the kind of reinforcement that we need in our society. What usually happens? The mother says, I never liked that bum anyway. And the daughter's going, oh, thanks, you know. Can I come back and live with you? You know, and that's the way it is. And it's not right. It's wrong before God. And all that it does is it creates the monst this monstrosity that we live in where marriages are falling apart left and right because we don't honor the principles of God. Did you make promises to your spouse that were witnessed by people that were there who remember what you said to one another and hold you accountable to it. That's it. That's the end of it. I don't know what else you need to discuss. You need help? Great, we'll get you help. You want counseling? We'll get you counseling. You want us to pray for you? We'll pray for you. You need support? We'll support you. But we're not going to support you to get out of your commitment. Honor your word to one another. Work it out. Man, what a simple message. Too bad it's not followed by too many people, huh? The third thing that God says is that you made a commitment to one another. It's confirmed by our sexual unity. When you get together, Matthew 19.5 says, The two shall become one flesh, speaking specifically of sexual unity. 
Genesis 2.24 says, For this cause a man will leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Once again, God's saying, you know what? The Bible clearly teaches that sexual unity confirms our commitment or promises that we made our spouse. Think about it. Sexual intercourse is a sacred act in the sight of God by which a couple consummates or seals their commitment to one another. If you, have, if you have had a sexual relationship with your spouse, you have sealed the commitment that you made to one another. That's what God says. It's a done deal. It's finished. But also number four, which is kind of interesting, is that you know marriage really is something that's controlled by the authority of God. Marriage is controlled by God's authority. It's important to note that once we voluntarily enter into a marital relationship, we then place ourselves under God's authority. He holds us accountable. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Matthew 19, 6. When we voluntarily enter into that relationship, we place ourselves under the authority of God, and God holds us responsible for our actions and holds us accountable to Him because He's the one that puts us together. And it really, you know, think about it, it shouldn't be that difficult to understand. If you take a job, you voluntarily subject yourself to the authority of your employer. If you accept citizenship in a certain country, you voluntarily subject yourself to the authority of that particular country. If you play sports, you voluntarily subject yourself to the authority of the coach or the administration or whoever's in charge. If you sign a contract, you voluntarily voluntarily put yourself under the authority of whoever can enforce that particular agreement. If you get married, you voluntarily place yourself under the authority of God. That's as simple as it gets. The point is, we need to take what we say we're going to do very, very seriously. Because in Ecclesiastes 5, 2, and 4, it says this, Don't be hasty. Don't be hasty in word or in impulse in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in the heaven and you are on the earth, therefore let your words be few. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. He says, pay what you vow. A-E-I-O-U. Think about it. We need to take our time. If you're single, you need to take your time and understand the commitment that you're getting yourself into and understand the accountability that you have before God because marriage is controlled by the authority of God. If you're married, it's too late. Now you need to understand that God is in control and he is in authority over your life. And there's no other way that we can get around any of these things. God is in control. Side note, when you say you're going to do something, you better do it. God takes no delight in fools. And if you read through the Bible, God doesn't think very highly of foolish people. Because foolish people say in their heart there is no God and that they're not accountable to God. But God's moral absolutes are, are applicable to all of us. And we better take into consideration when we agree to do something that that's what we're agreeing to do. You know, great example. When In our business, as far as contracting, anytime a contract comes across our desk, we read through it, we look at it, we know what we're agreeing to do. We signed that contract. No one holds a gun to our head and said, here, sign this contract. It's not signed under duress. We look at it. We examine it. This is our business. We better know what we're doing. We better, we better look at all our costs, as they say. Est you know, look at all your estimates. Understand what's involved so that when you sign the contract, you know what you're getting yourself into. 
We don't play games where we go to people and say, oh, we missed this, or we missed that, or we didn't do this, or we didn't see that, or whatever. Now, if it's changed, then there's changes, there's legitimate things to go back for increases. But if nothing has changed, then we honor our word. If we missed it, we missed it. Why? Because we're supposed to be the experts in that particular area, not the people we do business with. We're, we're liable for that. We honor our word. If we have to eat it, as they say in the business, you eat it. That's the way that it is. Simple, pure and simple. There's nothing to negotiate. There's nothing to further to discuss. That's the way it is. We need to understand, all of us need to understand, whatever arena it is, when you say you're going to do something, then you do it. That's why I'm very hesitant to agree to do certain things. I don't flippantly say yes to everything that comes along the way, not counting the cost, because I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to honor that commitment or not. Here's how you know you violated it. You ever feel like you're too busy? Do you ever feel like you can't cover all the bases of everything you agreed to say that you'll do? Do you ever have like a lack of peace and joy in your life because of all the commitments that you have made? And then you ever, have you ever gotten to the point where you've had a back out of a commitment or you haven't honored a commitment or you quote flaked out because you were just too busy? All of those are a sign or symptom that you, you don't understand what it means to say yes. Because if you understood what it meant to say yes, and you did all the things that you said you were going to do, you wouldn't have a lack of peace about it, and you wouldn't be frustrated about it, and you wouldn't be complaining about it, because you already knew what you were getting into before you said yes that you were going to do it. You know what's a wonderful thing to learn how to say? No. I don't feel guilty about it. I've taken bad raps from even people here at church because I've said, no, thank you. I don't want to be involved in another ministry. I don't want to be involved on a board. I don't want to be involved in this or that. I've taken a lot of uh, you know, uh, criticism for that because it's easy to misunderstand that and look at it as an attitude, well, he doesn't want to do it. Well, you know what? I know what my gifts are. I know what my responsibilities are. I know what God's gifted me to do, and I know who I'm responsible for. And I've got a family, and I've got other obligations, and I've got things that I know what those are. So I'm very confident in what I can say yes to and what I say no to. Now, other people are offended by that, and I'm sorry to hear that, and that's just the way that it is. But you know what? I wish more people would stop and consider this principle. Before you say yes, you better count the cost. Because if you can't do it and give it 100% and be, and be glorifying to God in your efforts and have a peace about it and a joy about it, then you're doing something God never intended you for to, to do. And all you did was buckle under the pressure of a few people that called you some names. So what? I'd rather be honoring to God than people who try to pressure you into anything. It's like people call you on the phone. Hey, good cause. Would you give us some money? No. Well, why not? Well, because we sit down every year and we budget where our giving and contributions are going to go. And, you know, and this is the way that we operate and this is the way that we work. So when somebody on the street comes up and says, hey, buddy, can you give me some money? I say, no, I'm really sorry, I can't. But you know what? There's a Salvation Army you ought to get plugged into or there's some churches that would help meet your needs. I don't feel guilty about not giving people money on the street. And I don't feel guilty about not giving people money who call me on the phone and try to pressure us into giving money. I say, that's a great cause. That's a wonderful thing. I'm glad you're excited about it. We'll pray for you. But you know what? We've already, we've already budgeted. we got limited resources. We can't give to everybody who wants it. And that's the same with our time. That's the same with our energy. And that's the same with our word. When we say we're going to do it, we do it. If I tell you I'm going to do something, you don't have to worry about it. I'll do it. Because I've thought very carefully about what I said yes to before I said yes. And you know what? Marriage is no different. Man, you know what? If more of us could understand that... You say, well, you know what, though? Well, what if I'm one of those people who bit off more than I can chew? Is there some way I can get out of this? That's a good question. Because some of you are probably struggling with it. 
Now, the, in, in a lot of areas of life, there are a lot of ways you can get out of it. But the bottom line is you go to the authority that you agree to and you submit to their authority and say, you know what, I really messed up and I said yes to something I should never have said yes to. Would you allow me to get out of my obligation? They have the privilege and the right as those in authority to be able to tell you yes or no. But God's the same to some degree when it comes to marriage. But he says the problem with marriage, it's changed by very unique circumstances. And uh, basically, w when you take a look at it, let me give you just, let me give you, well, four of them that are found in Scripture. In Numbers 30, if a person in the Old Testament made a commitment to get married, then if a father didn't agree to it, the father had the, the, the opportunity to get that person out of that commitment, but he'd have to pay off the family of the people that this man was going to marry, her family. So there was a way to get out of it in those days. Somebody who got engaged and they didn't get the permission of their parents, so they said, wait a minute, we're not, we're not approving this marriage. Now they were obligated, though, by the commitment that was made by their son to pay off their family. So then you move on to the next thing. Well, there you go. You can get out of your marriage. You can get out of your marriage if your spouse dies. Somebody going, there's hope. <laughs> but, but, you can't be the cause of it. Because thou shalt not murder. Right? There's the problem. But in Romans 7, 1 through 3, very clearly teaches that when a person's spouse dies, that's why we say, or until death do you part. When the person's spouse dies, they are no longer obligated under the law. They are then free to consider remarrying. But there's also parameters that exist there as far as what God says about who you can remarry and, and how you date and all the activity that goes along with that. But the bottom line is if your spouse dies, it frees you up to be able to do that. I like Foster Brooks. He said, you know, well, two of my wives, you know, my first wife died because she ate poisoned mushrooms. And then my second wife died because she ended up with a skull fracture. The guy goes, man, skull fracture. He goes, yeah, I couldn't get her to eat the poison mushrooms. But, uh, you know, a little dark humor there, a little dark humor. But, you know, still, nonetheless, it's, 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 the, the, po the, point is, the point is well taken. Anyway, but, oh, threes and 4.3s. You know, you guys are tough this morning. You should have more coffee. Okay, second way that you can get out of marriage as far as God is concerned is if you are married and your spouse is not a believer. Let's take for a moment and for an instance that you know you got two people that get married, neither are Christians. At some point in their relationship with one another, one person becomes a Christian and the other person does not. The person who is a non-Christian is getting a little bit upset about the person that is a Christian and doesn't want anything to do with it and decides to leave. If the person who's a Christian did nothing to force that person to leave, but that person voluntarily left, didn't want anything to do with you anymore, then God says, according to that particular situation, then you are not obligated under the law, but you are free to remarry. But God also says this. If the person that's unbeliever continues to want to live with you, then you should allow him or her to do that because you can win them to Christ by the way in which you live and conduct your life. That's his first, his first uh, uh, priority would be, hey, if, they, if everyone wants to stay together, then stay together and work it out. That's a wonderful thing. But if one person leaves, they leave, and you're not obligated. And also, in Matthew 19, 9, Jesus taught very clearly, except for immorality, which was, very simple, divorce based on immorality. 
not the guilty party, but the one who was innocent of it, God says, if this is the particular case in your life, then you're no longer obligated to the vow that you made because the person violated that vow, which was, I was going to be faithful to you. Promised you and nobody else. That was part of the vow. That was part of it. And, and the thing you've got to remember is, even if that's not part of the vows, God still holds, because I get creative people all the time and say, well, we want to write our own vows. Oh, okay, you write whatever you want, but it's kind of like, you know, what, do you want, what are you trying to get across? Well, we don't like to say words like subject and honor and faithfulness. and Well, gee, you know what? It doesn't really matter whether you want to be faithful or not and whether you've actually said it. You know, some of you are going, did I say that part? Did I say that part? I don't remember that. You know, you're going through, re, uh, trying to relive it. It doesn't matter. God still holds you responsible to be faithful whether you said it in your vows or not. Okay, so let's clarify that. So don't get tricky with the semantics of your vows and try to have a lawyer write it up so you got a little escape clause in it, you know, because that's not the case. Anyway. So those are the circumstances. Number six, it's also characterized by a sense of accountability. If you said that you were going to do it, you did. You're accountable to God. You're accountable to your spouse. You're accountable to your descendants. First Timothy five eight. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Titus one sixteen. They profess to know God, but their deeds, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good thing. The Bible clearly teaches that when we make a vow or a promise to another person, we're accountable before God, we're accountable to our spouse, we're accountable to our descendants. The tragedy that's taking place in our society today is the number of single-parent single households that are headed by women because deadbeat dads are flaking out and they're taken off. I'll talk to you more about that when we get to the, the, the issue of family. But the bottom line is we got too many dads in our country who are not owning up to their responsibilities and are, according to God, they're a bunch of deadbeats. And they're worse, if you're a Christian, you're worse than an unbeliever because you know the truth and you're not doing what you're supposed to do. What? I am responsible and I am accountable, period. That's the way that it is. We need to understand that. We cannot run from this particular responsibility. We need to be responsible before God. Husbands and wives are accountable to God. We're accountable to one another. We're accountable to our children. And anything short of that puts us in a category of an unbeliever. Which is, you know, think about the indictment as far as God is concerned. And the last thing, and probably one of the things that, that would be wonderful if it was reinstilled in our society, is that it's no wonder that weddings aren't the celebrations that they used to be. Because you go into it as skeptical as can be. This is your first, second, third, whatever, fourth. How, how excited can we all get? I mean, there should be a clause. If it doesn't last so long, you get not only your gift back, but you get double the price or something. You know what I mean? It's like, how excited could you get about a wedding celebration when you live in a society that doesn't honor marriage? Man, there was a day where it was excitement time. Man, when, when you look at this and Jacob got married, he said to Laban, give me my wife or my time is completed. And he said, man, they gathered all the men of the place. They had a feast. They had a party. It was party time because it was a wonderful thing to establish your own household before God. What a wonderful rite of transition or rite of passage. Think about it for a moment. The whole concept of marriage. 
for parents who have raised their children to love the Lord and you've done what you could do and now here they are, they're grown adults before God, they're responsible for their actions and now they're setting out independent of you, dependent upon God to establish their own household before God. What a wonderful thrill that is as a parent to see that day arrive for your children. No, we have done what God has required us to do. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful rite of passage for that child to recognize, you know what, I'm leaving my father and my mother and I'm clinging to my wife and we're establishing our own house we're establishing our lives together. If you want to support us, great. If you want to get in our way, stay out of the way because we know what our responsibility is before God. What a wonderful celebration that is. And then to have, have children that grow up to love God. I mean, there's nothing that could be more exciting than that. Why? God loves marriage. Jesus went to the wedding of Cana and it was the first place he chose to show some earthly signs or wonders or miracles because he endorsed marriage as the institution that was founded by God from the very beginning. Why? God loves marriage. He loves families. It was his idea. He wants everybody in the world that, is, that he hasn't gifted to be single to get married, to have children, to have families, to be fruitful and multiply and fill this earth with children that love God. And look to him for their salvation. That's God's desire for the human race. It was a time to celebrate. Man, you know what? You get right down to it and you stop and think of all these things. Regretfully, in our society, it has been destroyed because we don't honor God's absolute moral standards. We've gotten to the point where thou shalt not lie doesn't mean anything. Thou shalt not commit adultery doesn't mean anything. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife or thy neighbor's goods doesn't mean anything. We've gotten so far away from understanding what it means to make a commitment. What it means to say something and then be held accountable and responsible for what we say. I mean, I, you know, I've got to ask you a question, and you've got to ask yourself some hard questions. In every area of your life, do you realize the importance of honoring your word? And the most simplest things from, we'll be there at 10 o'clock, to be there at 10 o'clock. From, when you tell your kids, I'll take you somewhere Saturday, to take them somewhere that you promised Saturday. When you think about the promises that you made to your spouse through better for worse, through richer for poorer, in sickness and in health, and all these roller coaster rides of life and the reality sets in to be able to say, you know what, I may not like you today, but there's one thing you never have to worry about. I'm not going anywhere. I'm committed to this relationship and we're going to work it out one way or the other. And I don't care how long it takes us, we're going to see this thing through and we're going to work it out. Man, you know, if we all understood this, would drop that divorce rate just like that. If we understood that it's not acceptable, that it's not, that's the way it is. If we could teach a new generation of children, you know what? Forgive us for what we've done. We haven't honored our word before God. We haven't honored our commitment to one another. And it's no wonder that our kids don't honor their commitments that they make either. Because we're the role model. We're the example. True story. Hernando Cortez had a plan. He wanted to lead an expedition into Mexico to capture all of its vast riches. And when he told the Spanish governor his strategy, the governor got so excited that he gave him 11 ships and 700 men. But the governor didn't hear the whole plan that Cortez had. After several months of travel, the 11 ships, they landed in Veracruz in the spring of 1519. And as soon as the men unloaded the ships, Cortez instituted the rest of his plan that he hadn't shared with the governor nor the men. When all the men and the provisions were put on shore, Cortez at night sent out a, a group of his guys and he burned and sank all 11 of his ships. He didn't, know what he, he didn't know what he was in for. He didn't know what to expect. He didn't know whether they were going to be destroyed by the people that lived in the land that they now found themselves. 
He didn't know what the challenges would be, but he understood one thing. If the ships were still there, it would give his men an opportunity to run whenever the pressure got too great. And as a leader of these particular men, he also understood this. If the ships are burned and there's no place to run and no place to hide, they had tremendous incentive to stay and fight it, fight it out and do whatever they had to do. You know, and I like that as an illustration. Because you know what? I think it's time that God's people burn their ships. You know what I'm saying? It's just you burn your ships. There's nobody else. There's no what ifs. There's no I could have been with someone else. When you said that you were going to marry the person that you married, there's no other options. The little black book and the addresses and the phone numbers and the faces and the albums and the pictures and all those things that remind you of what other possibilities were, they don't exist anymore. Burn your ships. Because there's no other option before God. Burn your ships. God's people need to learn a lesson from Hernando Cortez. And that is that we need to be people who burn our ships. We move forward trusting God and honoring our work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to just look into your word once again. God, I'm so glad that you're not like many of us who change your mind when it's inconvenient or change your plans or change your word to go with the flow. God, I'm glad that your word is a standard that we can count on from here into eternity. That your word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that you're not like men who change their mind and lie. God, we're just grateful that in you there is no darkness and your word can be depended upon forever. God, may we be men and women who exemplify your character in the area of honoring our commitments. When we say we're going to do it, there should never be a second doubt or question from anyone whether it will be done. What a wonderful legacy it is to leave with our children and their children and our society as a whole that God's people, men and women who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes, would honor their commitments to one another. God, help us to understand the consequences when we violate your moral absolutes. For all of us who have violated that commitment, that absolute of thou shalt not lie, may we confess our sin before you. May we receive your forgiveness, and may we make it right here on earth whenever possible. God, help us this day forward to take out a match and to burn our ships, to move ahead trusting you, trusting your word, and just looking forward to what you have for us in the future as we honor you. And we just pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.